Hey, good morning, Rock Hill. Okay. Man, good morning to you. I'm so glad to see you here today. If you have your Bibles, please grab them and turn to Matthew chapter 13. We're in our series through the book of Matthew. We're uh, starting a new little series, mini-series, these next four weeks on a title of the series called Unbelief. Unbelief. I'm so grateful for our ministries of our church. Tonight, Kids Choir kicks off, and so we're pumped about that. Today, our youth have a huge outreach of dodgeball. Sign-ups are at 3.30, so if you are wanting to like throw a ball at some kids, maybe you can show up and help out. No. We're excited about that today. It'll be at the high school. So thankful for our BISD just opening up the gym and letting us use it uh, for free. So grateful for their ministry to us as we even get to minister to them. I don't know if you've ever been rejected before, but I have. Can you think about a time when you've been rejected by somebody? It doesn't take me long to think about the rejection I received in junior high. That's usually where your biggest rejections happen. There was a girl I really liked. Uh, she was at our church, and uh, she was taller than me, and she was uh, in the same choir. Uh, we were both altos because my voice had not changed. <laughs> I thought, oh, I'm surely a bass, and then I saw the bass notes and went, I cannot get there. I mean, this is the reality of my life, right? <clears throat> so... We were, I was, it was obvious that she was like into me, obvious, she just didn't know it. <laughs> I like this girl, and so I thought, you know, homecoming was coming up, it was homecoming this weekend for, I know, BISD, and I, I just knew for a fact that if I just asked the question, she would just absolutely fall head over heels and say yes to my question. It was just simply this, will you go to homecoming with me? It did not take her long for her eyes just to begin to go up into her head and Begin to roll around, and she quickly said no. And I went, okay, see you at church. I would have rather been stuffed into the locker. We had one of those, you know, human-sized lockers, not the little bitty locker. We had a human-sized locker. I would have rather stayed in there the next period than go to English. But I was rejected. It hurt. I mean, it was the worst moment of my life in junior high. I didn't think I would make it to freshman year because of this moment. Now, maybe you haven't been rejected like that, but maybe you have been rejected. It may have been a relationship that you thought was strong and something happened and you just felt this rejection by that person. Maybe, maybe it was your parents, you, you have felt some way that they've rejected you. Or, or maybe it's your own children that you feel a degree of angst and anger from them to you. Maybe it was a, an applying for a loan and you wanted, you wanted a loan and you thought you were going to get it for your business and it just did not pan out. We've all faced some type of rejection in life. And what if I told you that if you face rejection, then you know how Jesus felt. Jesus here in Matthew 13 is going to face rejection. He's going to face rejection, but the rejection isn't because they didn't, you know, they didn't like him, didn't want to go on to homecoming with him. It was a different type of rejection. It was a rejection that was based in unbelief. It was a rejection that said, we don't believe you are who you say you are. So today we're going to look at a text that shows us the results of your unbelief. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 53, reading through the end of the chapter. If you're there, will you say a word? When Jesus had finished these parables, he left there. He went to his hometown and began to teach them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where does this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Isn't, 
Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, aren't they all with us? Where does he get all these things? Verse 57. And they were offended by him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his household. And he did not do many miracles there. There it is, because of their unbelief. Jesus has been spending the majority of his time in Matthew in Capernaum. Capernaum was a city where it was kind of his home base when you think about the miracles and the teachings. If you've ever been to Israel, and if you're interested, maybe let me know. Maybe we plan a trip to Israel one day. But here's a picture outside of Capernaum. This sign was not there when Jesus lived, okay? You know how when a hometown hero goes to the NFL or NBA or whatever, and they put up a sign like, hey, home of so-and-so. Capernaum was the town of Jesus, and, and there, there's the, the synagogue in Capernaum. This is the actual synagogue that Jesus would have spoken in, not the one that's referenced in this text, but I'm giving this to you as reference. So if you see the very bottom stone, that's what Jesus would have stood on. And then they built up over the years, and so you have this snapshot of the synagogue there in Capernaum. It's all there, and of course it's been very commercialized. But it's all there, and Jesus would have spent a majority of his time teaching and preaching and doing miracles in this region of Capernaum. It's right there near the Sea of Galilee. It's all right in this area. And Jesus was there, and there comes this point where he'll even say in Matthew 13, they they see, but they don't see, they hear, but they don't hear, and they do not understand. And so he begins to teach in parables, and it really ultimately begins to confuse them to one degree or another because he's speaking in ways of which they don't understand. In part, they've become indifferent to Jesus. The people in Capernaum are hearing and seeing these things about Jesus, and they've just kind of been like, yeah, so what? There's a familiarity amongst them with Jesus, and they just kind of want to move on to something different. And so Jesus, it says in verse 53, that he leaves from there. He's spoken in parables, which we've walked through. And now we're coming to a place where he's leaving there, and he's going to his hometown called Nazareth. Now, Jesus going to Nazareth is where he grew up. Now, we have to be careful because in our minds we begin to imply things about Nazareth that aren't real. In fact, Nazareth, during Jesus' day, had about three to 400 people in population. It wasn't a metropolis. It wasn't a big city. Jesus loves the rural church, by the way. Jesus lived in a rural setting, a small town kid where literally everybody would have known about Jesus. These people had seen and observed Jesus. They had watched him grow up. Jesus had been a son of a carpenter, so there's a good chance that he had maybe built furniture or helped build homes for people in this community. We don't know a lot about the days of Jesus from from when he was left at the temple alone, about 12, and then to the point now where he's entered into ministry. There's not a lot that we know, but we do know that he grew up in Nazareth, and that's where he presided. And you can go there today, and of course there's been all kinds of things added, but as tradition would hold, Jesus would go to the synagogue. And at the synagogue, in the local community, be like the local church of this day, Jesus would go and he would observe, but when Jesus entered into ministry, Jesus began to teach. Now a corresponding passage to this moment in time is actually in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 14 and 16, or through 16, and, and there we, we observe Jesus going into the synagogue and he's, uh, of, his, of Nazareth and he's teaching. Now you have an idea of what the temple in Capernaum looked like, but I want to show you a picture of a, a makeshift of what they think the temple looked like in Jesus' day. 
And it's just one little picture, but this is inside. You can tell that it's not huge, and it's a remake of the original. So it's not the original. Don't think that I'm showing you. You can Google this, and you can find it. But it's not very big. That's relevant here because you have to understand that Jesus wasn't some random guy coming down. They knew who Jesus was. They observed Jesus growing up. They were aware of Jesus' progress in ministry. They had heard about it everywhere. They had seen it and even marveled at it. But now Jesus has gone home. And going home can be a really good thing, can't it? When you go home, you expect to be welcomed and to be cheered. But there's a degree of which there's some suspicion amongst those that are there. Jesus, in fact, when we learned this in Luke 4, when he would go to the temple one particular time, he reads out of Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. He reads from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Now, in your Bible, you can easily find Isaiah, even if you don't have your Bible, but you've got it on your phone, you can Google Isaiah 6, 1 and 2. Jesus didn't have Google, all right? There was no Rabbi Google in that day. Jesus didn't have scripture numbers, chapter numbers, or scripture references in his day. It was simply a scroll that he would grab and he would unfold it and Jesus knew exactly where it was and he would read in this particular moment from Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 and 2 and then he, he rolled it back up and then as tradition you sat down when you taught, I kind of missed that, but he sat down when he taught and he said today that scripture has been fulfilled in your presence. Today, that scripture, Isaiah 6, has been fulfilled in your presence, and people would hear that, and there began to be a little bit of a murmur of, really? Like you're saying that you're the Messiah? And that's the context of which we're building into today, here in chapter 13 of the unbelief of the people in Jesus' hometown. It says in verse 53 that he left from there and went to his hometown, and look at verse 54. 54 says this. He went to his hometown. He began to teach them in their synagogue so that they were, there it is, astonished at what he said. They were shocked at this Jesus who they had seen grow up. They had seen run the halls, or the hall, singular, of the synagogue. They had seen him roaming and even helping his father. And now they're seeing him and he's saying, hey, today this has been fulfilled. And they're astonished at what he is saying. Why? Because Jesus wasn't trained in the traditional sense. They were, in a sense, refused to see what was right in front of them. That's the first point. In fact, they refused to see. There's a sense of which their unbelief is causing them to refuse to see what should be so obvious to them. They had heard of his wisdom. They'd heard of his, of his miraculous powers. They'd seen all these things. And yet, they're, they're looking at Jesus, hearing him and going, where did this man get all this wisdom these are the two things they didn't understand, his wisdom and the miraculous powers. That means that they were hearing him speak and they had seen him do miracles and yet they refused to see that which was right in front of them. You know, we do the same thing. In a, in a practical way, we do this men when we open the fridge. Honey, where's the ketchup? It's in the fridge. Mmm, I don't see it. I don't see it, honey. And then all of a sudden, she comes over, and she grabs it. It's right in front of you, right? Here's the ketchup. Amen, ladies? Okay, good. You're with me. I'm not alone. I'm the only one that does it. So here's the lesson, guys. This is a very, this is a sub, sub point. Just move some things around in the fridge, and you'll find what you're looking for, okay? Before you ask, just, okay, all right. But refusal to believe leads into an inability to see. 
Refusal to believe, I refuse to believe in Jesus, results in an inability to see Jesus for who he really is. This is not uncommon. This actually has happened throughout. We learn in John chapter six, uh, John chapter three, excuse me, verses 16 and 17. We learn, uh, we learn that in John chapter three, you can look at 16 all the way to 20, you actually see where Jesus tells us the light has come upon us, but because they love the darkness so much, they refused to see the light. And when we look at the rest of the world, when we look at even our own hearts, there's a sense of where we don't want to see the truth. We don't want to see the light we, because we love the darkness of which we're living in too much. Romans chapter 1 tells us in verses 18 through 19, it tells us that we loved our sins so much. We refused to see the creation which is crying out the beauty and majesty and the glory of God. We refuse to see because we love our sin so much. Part of the reason why we do not see the truth of Jesus is because we love the darkness and we love our sin too much. And so we go in this pursuit, even looking for maybe a higher power, but in reality, Jesus is right in front of you saying, I am who I said I am, and I have done what I said I would do, and I will be who you need me to be if you would just believe. They were astonished. They couldn't Imagine that this Jesus who they'd seen grow up would be the Messiah, the one who prophesied, the one who's now connecting things to the Old Testament to himself. They could not fathom that this would be the Messiah. Surely not. They were astonished. They could not believe it. You know, lost people, people who do not believe, come to us with questions all the time. And I'm not afraid of questions because Jesus isn't afraid of questions. But so often I will come to a place with people who are asking questions about Jesus, searching out their faith. I will say, listen, if I could answer this one question for you, would you believe and trust in Jesus Christ? And often that person will look at me and say, no, 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 I have more questions. Because in the end, they don't really want an answer to their questions. They just want an excuse to not believe. They were astonished at this Jesus who, who is this? Where does he get this wisdom? He's not gone through the proper schools. He's not gone through the proper ranks. And yet he sits here and he teaches as one with authority. Who gave this man that authority? His wisdom, his miraculous powers. They resisted, refused to see. But not just that. Look at verse 55 and 56. It tells us something different. They say, isn't this the carpenter's son? They don't even mention Joseph's name. Isn't this the, his mother called Mary? His brothers, sisters, where does he get all these things? When you refuse to believe, you actually begin to refocus on the immaterial. They refocused on the immaterial. They bring up tertiary issues like, hey, remember his dad? Wasn't that the carpenter's son? Like, I mean, he was like this tall. I mean, come on, what, really? And his, his mom, Mary. Yeah, yeah, Mary. You know Mary. Yeah, 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 Mary. The one that claimed that she was, like, had the son of God in her. I mean, come on. And he's got brothers and sisters. Like, the, like that's, where, where did this guy come up? Here's what happens. When you refuse to believe, you begin to pick apart things that just really ultimately don't matter that you think should be the focus when they really don't. You know, this happens all the time. That church, a bunch of hypocrites. And I go, Yeah. We often say one thing and do another. We're, we're battling that. But here's the deal. When we understand and embrace our hypocrisy, we then begin to go, to go to God and go, God, would you forgive me of my hypocrisy? But you and your hypocrisy, you have nowhere to go. You're still trying to hide. 
See, they try to focus on all the other things. Oh, that church is a bunch of hypocrites. That preacher, that preacher talks too fast. You should have seen me my first year. That, that church is too formal or that church is too informal. That church doesn't do enough for other people. That church does everything for themselves. Or that church does too much for other people and, and really just needs to stop. You will always find a reason if you're looking hard enough to not believe in Jesus. And you will often put other people in that place because you know that they can't meet up to the standards of Jesus. If a Christian could measure up to the standards of Jesus in their own power, they wouldn't need Jesus. But because we cannot meet up to the standards of holiness and righteousness in of ourselves, we need the Savior to save us. This is why we need the gospel. So if you see a church that's full of hypocrisy and maybe even cliques and there's all these kind of character flaws in the people, you go, praise God that sinners like me are welcome here. But they like to refocus on the immaterial. If you look hard enough, you'll find a reason to not believe in Jesus. Like a hammer looking for a nail. You'll find something. Justify why you don't believe. So they... Refocus on the immaterial, the things that just don't matter, his family, which actually, because he was born, actually just proves that he is the Messiah. It actually confirms prophecies that were given that he would have a mother and be born, particularly in Bethlehem. But that's where they want to put their focus. Not only do you refuse to see and you all begin to refocus on the immaterial, but look at verse 57. This is... The worst thing, they were offended by him. They resist the truth. A person who does not believe in Jesus, they're resisting the truth. They don't want the truth. They don't want to be told that they're in the wrong. But the truth remains the standard. Now just think for a second. If you are walking and there's a speed bump and you don't see the speed bump and you trip on that speed bump, does that make the speed bump irrelevant and not real? No, thank you. I love one of our new believers is sitting right here. Bill, thank you so much. I love Bill. They're offended by Jesus. They, they trip over the speed bump. They don't want to have the truth exposed to them, but it's there. But they're offended. Why? Because the truth often offends us. It hurts. So you're telling me that today this has been fulfilled, this prophecy has been fulfilled in you? Oh, I don't like that. And they use that as an excuse to not believe. Think about Jesus. He exposed their hypocrisy. Jesus came from ordinary means. Jesus wasn't trained in the traditional sense that others were trained in, yet he knew and spoke with authority unlike those who had been trained. Jesus wasn't trained in the way that they said you had to be trained. Jesus had an authority which far surpassed their authority. You think about the Pharisees. They would be offended at how well Jesus knew the scriptures. You think about the scribes. They'd be offended at how well Jesus could navigate the scriptures. They did not like Jesus. And then he would do miracles. So Jesus says, hey, there's prophets without honor except for in his hometown or in his household. It's amazing to me that here we find People looking for a reason to not believe. A friend told me 
the mentor and friend had said that John 6 is one of the most powerful discipleship passages in all the scriptures. And I keep concluding that he's right. Because in John 6, you have this moment where Jesus feeds a multitude of people. And, and then the next day, they all come back and they want more food. And he says to them, you're just here for the food. You're just here for a free meal. I learned in economics in my freshman year that the acronym 10 Staffel, there's no such thing as a free lunch. It's going to cost somebody something. But in this moment, Jesus feeds, and then they come back the next day, and he, they say, we want more food. And he says, no, no, I'm not here to give you food. I am the bread of life. He tells them all these things. But then, but then all of a sudden, they begin to taper away. And Jesus says some things about following him that are difficult. And then in John 6, verse 66, not a great number, but in John 6, verse 66, it says that many disciples on that day walked away from Jesus never to follow him again. It's a dangerous verse. They resisted the truth. And Jesus looks at his disciples, the 12, and he says, are you going to walk away from me too? And Peter has this great moment where he actually does something right. He says, where else, Jesus, are we going to go? Only you have the word of life. Only you have the words of truth. Without you, we have nothing. It's in this moment of clarity for Peter, and I think even for the disciples to go, you are wherever you want us to go, wherever you call us to go, wherever you've called us to be, we want to go where you go. And yet there's a multitude of people who in that moment had walked away from Jesus. They resisted the truth. They did not want to be confronted with it. Jesus is always confronting us with truth. Not only does he do this in John 6, 66, but he does it in our own personal lives as we age. You know, in your 30s, you, you begin to question the decisions and commitments you made in your 20s. And so you begin to reevaluate them, and then you get to your 40s, and you begin to change some of those commitments. It's why so many, so many problems happen as we transition from our 30s into our 40s. You begin to question everything and saying, is this all there is to life? Because you realize that as you turn 40, you're almost, you're almost done. That's why they call it over the hill. And that hill is steep, at least in our minds. But I think some of the greatest days of your life are in your 40s and 50s, and not just because I'm in that range. Because you've understood the commitments and convictions you've had in your 30s, and therefore in your 40s you begin to go, hey, is this all there really is? And you begin to evaluate the fact that, hey, these convictions were right and true, and so you stay true to them. And then when you get to your 50s, you're not regretting that you made all these different changes in your 40s because you stayed and remained with your convictions in your 30s and 40s. And so therefore, your 50s and 60s become a living a life of a legacy that makes much of Jesus. Instead of making disastrous decisions in your 40s. Jesus comes and he says, hey, here's the truth. And they resisted it. They resisted it because they did not want to believe. But not only that, this is, after they're offended, look what happens in verse 58. And he did not do many miracles. Why? Because of their unbelief. They reject the miraculous. They've resisted. They've, re they've resisted. They refuse to see. They've refocused on the immaterial. They've resisted the truth. And now they reject the miraculous. This is a terrifying passage of scripture, friends. Now, why do they not believe? Well, they could have, some of it was because of their jealousy, maybe, their, their selfishness, maybe. 
I think ultimately the reason why they didn't believe is because of their pride. They thought that they knew better. This is the little kid that we saw growing up. How, how could this little kid be the Messiah? We saw him running around in his diaper, his Jerusalem huggies. We, we saw him grow up. We, we, his parents left him at the temple. Did you hear about that story? We left him at the temple. Surely not this kid. Of all the places Jesus should have been celebrated and revered, should have been his hometown, but I think pride is what kept them from embracing. And so in this moment, Jesus refuses to do many more miracles in, among their presence because of their unbelief. They chose to not believe, and so therefore, he doesn't do miracles. Pride is insidious. See, I think we fear cancer more than we fear pride. And yet, while one may take your body and your health, the other, if you stay in your pride and reject and refuse to follow Jesus, will result in your separation from him forever. We should fear pride more than we fear cancer. That's not to minimize cancer, and that's not to minimize the effects of cancer or any other illness. It's just to say the seriousness of our sin. We meet with men on Thursday mornings, and right now we're working through a marriage. We've got about four weeks left. I've taught two, and so other guys are teaching the rest. It's going to be great. It's going to only get better now. But we met this last week, and the part of the subject was how as men, as husbands, we ought to be the example of servant leadership in the home. Servant leadership, leading by serving, not leading by directing and commanding, and this is, I'm the captain of the ship, now go do this. No, no, leading by servant, servant leadership. And the content was simply this, the reason why we struggle as men with servant leadership is because of us. We are the primary reason why we don't serve our wives. We are the primary reason why we often show up to church expecting to be served rather to serve, which is antithetical to what Jesus did. When Jesus came into the earth, he said, I've come to serve, not be served, and give my life as a ransom for many. But so many of us men, we show up to the house expecting to be served. I've had a long day. I deserve to sit in my chair, dedicated, my throne, dedicated, tea, Half sweet, half unsweet, lime, thanks. Honey, chop chop. Yeah, you want to sleep at my house? You're going to be on the couch if you say that. And that kind of posture we feel like we deserve and we're owed. I've worked a long day. I've been under a lot of stress. And we cheat our wives and our children every second we live like that. Your pride is more dangerous to you than the worst disease you could ever imagine. The tentacles of that kind of sin wrap around so much of our hearts that it will cause us for where Jesus will look at us and say, there will not be many miracles among them because of their unbelief. And just maybe for you, your heart has become so cold to the Lord and you don't even realize that you're looking pride right in the mirror. And the miraculous has not happened in your life because 
you've refused and you've rejected and you've resisted and you've tried to make it about other things. And God is saying, look, I'm just calling to you. Repent and return. Repent and return. Repent and return. But your pride is so welled up in you that you refuse to actually admit that you've done anything wrong. We will not be the church that God has called Rock Hill to be if we are filled with people in this room who refuse to admit their great need for a Savior. You will not have the family God has designed and called you to have if you perpetually refuse to confess your sin. See, pride tells you you don't have any sin. Pride convinces you that you're doing pretty good. And pride always sets itself apart from someone else to go, well, God, I'm not as bad as this person. And he goes, I don't compare you to them. I compare you to my holiness. And when you're compared to my holiness, you're in trouble. But here's the great thing. Jesus doesn't see you for what you actually are. He sees you for who Jesus is. When you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is the Lord, he calls you his child. And so now he's saying, I don't see you. I see Jesus in you. And so now you don't have to wallow around, oh, I'm just this lowly sinner, although you are. But you also can say, that is my condition, but my position is in Jesus Christ. He has made me whole, and he has forgiven me and made me clean. But that only applies to those who've confessed Jesus as Lord. If you've not done that, do you understand the severity of where you stand right now? So Jesus calls, and he says, hey, today, Today needs to be the day that you confess your sin. You get honest to God. You repent, and you believe that only through Jesus you can be saved, and you confess him as Lord and Savior. And when you do so, he makes it so clear, you will be saved. In a moment, I'm going to pray. There'll be counselors here to counsel you, to pray with you, men and women. Lay people, not just me. I'm not the only person that has to pray with you. There are other people that are by God's grace, I can pray with you. You can come to the front and you can pray. But if you're here today and you need to give your life to Christ, or if you're on the line, today can be the day. Let's pray together. Father, we come and, Lord, we confess our great, our great need, my great need for my Savior. And, Lord, we're asking that as we now respond to you, that, God, you'd give us that special sense of grace by your Holy Spirit to save us and redeem us. And, Lord, we, we ask that there are those in this room that are just on the edge. They don't understand. Lord, today needs to be the day that they believe. They need to step over that goal line of faith. And Lord, for those in this room, they've been wallowing, weary. They've been resisting. They long to see you do a new work. May they not resist any longer. But may they also come and say, renew me again, Lord. Renew me again, we ask in Christ's name.